But at the same time, certain parts of them make them timeless, you know? Yeah, or dated. It depends on what. Dated but timeless. It's, it's kind of weird. But yeah, we're like... My Fair Lady, I, I would say, is pretty pretty much up there as far as movie musicals go. Oh, definitely. I particularly like the um, the song. Again, I'm not I'm, I'm not good with names right now, but like the song where uh, the young socialite guy, the guy who falls falls for Audrey Hepburn's character, Liza Doolittle's character, and uh, he goes to her stu- her her house or where she's staying with the professor, and he's like singing on the stoop or the stairs. I always like I listening to that song. I'm like, that's a really good song for a character that's like like almost like a side character, a supporting oh, I think character. The music's good, but the, like the most popular, you know, I could have danced all night. I've grown accustomed or, to or or Loverly. It, yeah, it Loverly's a well known song. No, there's definitely some well known songs from that. I have to watch the Audrey Hepburn movie when I have to. Yeah. Win. So yeah, there's that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, what's your next uh, soundtrack, Chris? Oh well, I, I'm thinking of some here. Um, there's a lot of horror movies that that really are excel or they soar because of their music. Sometimes it's like restrained. It's like key moments where the music comes in and really sells like the horror or the suspense. And I'm, I'm going to have to go with uh, right now insidious. Uh, a lot, a lot of that movie um, is effective because of the music. I mean, there's the visuals like they're like insane, but the music in that movie, especially like in the opening moments like you got this like bass note and there's like this screeching sound. It's like, you know, you've seen Insidious, right? The first, at least the first one. I actually haven't. I haven't. Seen it. No, no, you're naming all these like obscure horror movies. That, I mean, Insidious was not really so obscure. Like when it came out, I mean, when it came out in 2010, I remember people in my high school talking about it oh, all really? the time. And then they were saying how like, oh, it's not scary. And then someone, someone else says like, oh, it's so scary. Like a debate whether it's scary or not. I remember that in high school, and like I watched it several years ago for the first time, and like the music in that movie is just terrifying. Just like the violins or the screeching, the high pitched screeching sounds. It's, it's just in the opening moments, it like gives me like severe chills, and it's something that you like when you hear for the first time, you probably won't forget it. Cool. Uh, we ready to get into it now? Yep. Uh, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, so today we're talking about Pulp Fiction. Um, so Pulp Fiction is a neo-noir black comedy crime film released on October 14th, 1994. It was written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. The story was written by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery. It stars uh, John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Uma Thurman, Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Amanda Plummer, Hello, welcome to Cinemaniac Jack. I'm your host, Jack. Today's guest co-hosts are John and Chris. How are you guys today? I'm good. Doing swell, very swell. Tired. Just kidding, <laughs> I'm ready. No, I'm ready for this, though. Yeah. I hope you are, Shay. <laughs> uh, so basically, the gist of this show is that we talk about films that I love based on whatever the topic of the episode is, and in the first half of the show, I talk to my guests about whatever the topic is. So today's topic is a film with a favorite soundtrack. And the film I chose is Pulp Fiction. Uh, but first, John and Chris are going to tell us some of their favorite soundtracks. Uh, who wants to go first? Chris you can... go, Shady. Oh, you want me to go? Okay. okay. Um, first on my list, I have The Wizard of Oz um, mm. from 1939. The music was written by Harold Arlen. Famous songs include, uh, obviously, Somewhere Over the Rainbow and Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead. And... Um, 
if I only had a brain. And there's like one more big one. What's the other? If thing? I had a king, if I were king of the forest. I yeah, there's like a few, mm-hmm. but those are like the big three. I feel like the ones that everybody kind of recognizes. Like the no heart, no brain, no no courage. Yeah, I always found the cowardly lion always bothered me though. Like you, I always sympathize more with the Tin Man and the Scarecrow, but the cowardly yeah, lion. Yeah, I'm more been. more like Scarecrow the, above all of them. Like he was, so he was always my favorite of the three there. But, but yeah, the music. But is I mean, iconic. Over the Rainbow is arguably probably the most iconic song from a movie. I think it's been named like the number one song in like all of cinema, which kind of like yeah, kickstarted the whole like big song in movies. Thing. Yeah, because I can't really think of a song in a movie from before. The Wizard of Oz in 1939. That's kind of like a signature song of a movie, in a way. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's think a well written, and I think the music the, is well written though, mm-hmm. too. Because there is such a thing as like music that's not like well written. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think it's like well written. Yeah. What do you think? Do you have any memories associated with that music? I mean, like a lot of other kids, it's I used so to watch that yeah. movie a yeah. lot when I was mm-hmm. uh, little. So. Yeah, yeah. I've watched The Wizard of Oz a lot, a lot when I was a kid. And, um, that music, like, it, no matter like as long as it's been, you know, uh, as long as I've been on, you know, I've, as long as I've known the movie Wizard of Oz and I've seen it quite a few times, and like even when I haven't seen it, the music does stay with me. And like Over the Rainbow and all those songs, like I can probably like recite them almost verbatim, almost. But it's like, yeah, it's just kind of been in my life as far as long as I can remember. It's been one of your and that, longest. That's kind of like a testament to good music, too. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, uh, why don't you give us a suggestion? Well, yeah, I like to I like to get into uh, more like the musical scores, like not so much songs, but like musical scores or like original music for a film. And my all time favorite um, work, like done in with movie music, has to go to Howard Shore and his work on the Lord of the Rings trilogy. For me, that, that score, the, that work they did, the hours, the, the effort, the passion he put into that music, the, the language that they actually used, like he used language from like J.R. Tolkien's text, and he actually used that and utilized it in a way that would make the music more real and more emotional because it's like in certain scenes, it just... Um, he'll put like uh, like a bunch of people singing very deep in like dwarvish, like dwarf language, and then you got like another scene where he's uh, got like uh, these people singing elf uh, in the elf language. I mean, of course, they're made up languages; they're like fictional, so to speak. But like he puts it in there, and it, and it just makes it more real. That on top of like all the epic scenes, uh, you know, you shall not pass. Like that scene, like that whole. The music in like with Gandalf and the Balrog in the first film and just there's just like endless amount of examples I can bring up but no no other score of music in any film moves me like Howard Shore's uh, work on The Lord of the Rings yeah that's a pretty iconic uh, uh, score and it's funny because I can actually see the the posters of those movies hanging up yep. in the background. They're still on my wall. Room, yeah. You know, I really know. They'll always be movies. there. I can't believe you've never I've seen them. I've never those. seen them. 
I'm sorry, I've never seen the Lord of the Rings movies. I've just no, never gotten like, around to seeing them. Because I was probably too partake. young when they came out. They came out in the early 2000s, and I don't think my parents let me watch them. Although, I had, what's his name, Legolas? Legolas? Yeah. I had a poster of him on my wall, but I never saw the movie. <laughs> yeah, you told me that's <laughs> my mom. No, no, but it's so funny, but like my mom must have gotten it at like Target or something, but I had never seen the fucking movie, and I had the poster yeah, on the yeah, wall. Yeah, I also had a, a Legolas poster once, too. Like, we, that was we like all my masturbated to Orlando Bloom. No, just kidding. <laughs> no. Um, yes, but I, I do have to like actually devote 10 hours to watching. There's three, right? Yeah. Plus The Hobbit is another three. Yeah, you I mean, you don't have too. to watch those oh, well, movies. I have but... to watch those movies. I mean, I plus mean, Amazon's making their TV yeah. show, which yeah, apparently you costs a lot of money. Like, yeah. Howard Shore also scored the Hobbit trilogy, and he he does a really like a really good job with that. I mean, he, like the guy's a master. You can't really beat beat him uh, when it comes to Lord of the Rings, at least in my opinion. I mean, there's also John Williams and all, a whole bunch of other composers, Hans Zimmer. But for me, Howard Shore just kind of blows the other ones out of the water with his work with Lord of the Rings, in my opinion. Yeah, cool. Uh, what's your next uh, soundtrack, John? My next soundtrack, chronologically, is Sing uh, Singing in the Rain, uh, 1952, mm -hmm. music by Arthur Freed, uh, Nasio Brown. The most famous songs that like everybody knows are like Good Morning, Singing in the Rain, the title track, um, Make Them Laugh, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, the music's just always stayed with me. And I think that I don't know, Singing in the Rain is like an example of a movie musical done well, and there's definitely examples of movie musicals done badly. I was trying to name some, but I couldn't really think of any. Yeah. Um, mm. But yeah, we I don't like know, it's a classic. Positive. And it gets used in all these commercials. I, I just saw like a commercial, I think it was for like laxatives or something, which was like, <laughs> good morning, good morning, where they use oh, that was song. One for, like that was for like an OJ commercial. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, it might have been orange juice instead of laxatives or something. Yeah. But, um, and of course, singing in the rain. Everybody knows that freaking song. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. That's just like "Go Over the Rainbow," singing yeah. in the rain. Is Even though I never play. thought Gene Kelly was much of a singer, you know, obviously he's known more for the dancing and the acting. I feel like the singing was definitely his weakest part of being. But a I think he threat. did it just fine. Like it worked. Like I guess, like he could. I guess he can carry a tune, but can he carry it very well? You know, that's up for debate. Yeah, but back in those days, that was allowed. I feel like in movie musicals it didn't really matter if you were like really great at singing like they still cast people who like couldn't really sing that well back yeah then. i think it was all based on the charisma and like just the the ability to like you know pull off the music the movie musical with the dancing the choreography and the be how likable you are and like the, like what, how much star power you have that kind of thing oh definitely uh what's your next soundtrack uh chris Oh yeah, so like um, again, I, I like well thing about movie mu like scores. I actually that's something I listen to the most when it comes to music. Overall, like the the whole shebang. Like if I were to go drive in the car for a long distance, I put on movie music, you know, like original scores done in movies. And one that I listen to quite a bit, and especially recent, I would like when I would be driving to uh, say rehearsal for a show. Uh, or performance. I I, I was I've been putting on the Mummy, which is uh, a soundtrack um, produced. Uh, was composed, conducted by Jerry Goldsmith, who is comparable to Omen. John Williams a little bit. Sorry, I'm like screaming. He did the <laughs> Omen, didn't he? Do the Omen? Yeah, he um he's known for um a lot. He's very versatile uh, with his movie musicals. I mean, what am I saying? So he um, it in. his musical scores. 
And um, he's known for horror, a lot of horror. He did Alien. He did um, one of the Psycho movies, the sequels. He's, he's done a lot of horror movies. Then he's done some action movies. And The Mummy was kind of a combination for him to do that something that was right up his alley, like an, an action-adventure movie that has little bits of horror. And if you listen to the soundtrack, there's like a lot of moments where he builds suspense and tension and it's 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 very it's very loud it's bombastic but it also has this like details to it this richness that i mean it's you can't really find in certain adventure movies like adventure movies are like very triumph triumphant and they they're very like kind of like one or two notes with that score there's a lot more going on and um that i think out of the the three moment movies that came out with Brendan Fraser the first one kind of beats the others in terms of music because it really takes you back to, you know, ancient Egypt and puts you in that like that adventure movie and makes you feel that you are like watching an adventure movie uh, where you have the characters traveling in the ancient ruins of Egypt. I've never actually seen the Mummy movies. Yeah, I've, I've heard either. of them, but like they're on my list. The first one's really good. The second one's still good, even though, you know, some people will hate on it because of like CGI or whatnot. But the third one is crap. So, like, I would say maybe watch that once and never again. Uh, what's your next soundtrack, John? My next soundtrack, it's not really, yeah, my, oh, okay. My next soundtrack, I got uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh, yeah. Uh, composed by Henry Mancini. Mancini? Yeah, I think it's Mancini. And, of course, the arguably only song, most famous song, Moon River. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> and I just think it's, like, another great example of, like, a movie having a signature song and, um... Legend has it that when they presented Moon River to the studio executives, they wanted them to cut that song. Yeah. And Audrey Hepburn was like, over my dead body. Yeah. When you cut that song. But the idea of, like, these studio executives being like, yeah, you have to cut that shit out of the movie. Yeah. When it's arguably, like, what makes the movie so iconic. Because everybody always remembers that song with the yeah. movie. Then it ends with that song. And it ends too, with I that think, song. It right? starts with that song. It's kind of like the overarching theme of that movie. It would be like cutting as time goes by from Casablanca or cutting... What's like another movie with like a signature song? I don't know. I can't think of any. Yeah, I can't think of any right now. But yeah, that that's all. I just wanted to give a shout out to Breakfast at Tiffany's because I think Moon River is like a really good song. And mm, of course, yeah. and uh, just to backtrack for just one sec, uh, like I just wanted to mention that Singing in the Rain is my favorite uh, movie musical, at least right now. I don't think that's going to change. That's like at the very top of the list for me. Oh, good. So give a little shout out there. But yeah. Um, yeah, Breakfast at Tiffany's. I'm not like I've seen that movie bits and pieces of it, but I I, I gotta kind of like watch the whole thing, like sit down and watch the whole thing thing sometimes. Yeah, parts of it I that haven't aged so well in relation to certain characters. Probably not, but like uh, you could say the same in certain aspects of uh, My Fair Lady, which is another Audrey Hepburn or yeah Audrey Hepburn movie, right? Yeah, yeah, she was in that one. Audrey Hepburn, yeah. That was, I just watched that for the first time, like, all the way through uh, recently, and I thought it was really, really good. I mean, yeah, there's certain things about it that, you know, like, about, you know, the, what's his name? Uh, what's the, Rex Harrison's, Harrison's name in the movie? In the movie, um, My Fair Lady. My Fair Lady. It's, um, I'm trying to think of the name. He's the Excuse guy, me. the professor. Yeah, professor. Yeah, professor, professor something. Henry yeah, like how, you know, he like his, their relationship is like a toxic whatever. But again, that's just like Maria Deb Maderos and the mishaps. Yeah, but now, and, now they're like they're like they talk about it because they're like, oh, we gotta cancel it. <laughs> Ving Rhames, Eric Stoltz, 
Rosanna Arquette, Christopher Walken, and Bruce Willis. Wow. <laughs> That's like a big stacked cast. Yeah. Um, the film is a series of vignettes uh, centered around the L.A. crime lord, Marcellus Wallace, played by Ving Rhames. What and does the... Marcellus Wallace look like? <laughs> <laughs> of his hitmen, Jules and Vincent, played by John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson. His wife, Mia, played by Uma Thurman. And Boxer Butch, played by Bruce Willis. So, um, yeah, so in my opinion, this movie's not just one of the greatest movies ever made, but it's also, I think, one of the best soundtracks ever. I just, I don't know, I just love the the blend of surf rock and, like, 70s soul. And um, I'll always remember, John, you actually gave me a, cop- a, a copy of a CD of it, I think, for Friendsgiving a couple of years ago. Really? You don't remember that? No. I still have it in my room somewhere. I, should I gave show you. you a copy of Pulp Fiction on the vinyl? CD. On uh, the CD? Yeah. That's weird. Why would I do that? I think you just did it as like a Why would I do gag, that? but like, I don't oh, know. Well, that's a good gift. Yeah, it is a good I, gift. I always give good gifts. I got Jack Rolling Stone's tickets. I'm always the good gift giver. You know, That's, that's, a, that's a tough gift, out. yeah. But yeah, the soundtrack's really iconic. You know, I got into a car accident while we were listening to Son of a Preacher Man by Dusty Springfield in my car. <laughs> yeah, it wow. wasn't exactly, I, I was rear-ended, we were on our way to Asbury. So now, as a matter of, like, superstition, I can't listen to that song in the car anymore. And sometimes, it, but sometimes it's on a few different playlists on my Spotify. It'll be on my R&B playlist, or it'll be on my uh, 60s playlist. And also, whenever that song you hear, I'm like, ah, shit, I gotta change it. Because, <laughs> oh, you know, God. God forbid I get into another accident while Dusty Springfield is playing. Oh wow! Yeah, okay. but um, but uh, the Orange County Register said, "quote Unlike so many soundtracks, which just seem to be repositories for stray songs by hit acts, regardless of whether they fit the film's mood, Tarantino's use of music in Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction exploded with a brash Technicolor pop culture intensity that mirrored the st- the that mirrored the stories he was telling." And uh. Yeah, that's a really good summary of it. Um, and yeah, like whenever I do put the soundtrack on, I always have, I always have a blast listening to it. And of course, like you can't hear Miserloo and like not think of that opening. Like it's just so like well, just like well, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, just like the way with Son of a Preacher, man. I can't hear that song without thinking of Uma Thurman or without thinking of that scene in the mansion. I don't know. It's just the music is so intertwined with the movie. But part of that, that is due to how old the movie is, of course. The fact that it is from 1994. It's had enough time to really absorb into the years. general public. The movie's older than we are by yeah. like a I year. Mean, I'm, yeah. I'm 27. Oh, right. So, so well, like I'm, my, I'm a little younger. I will always be the same age as Pulp Fiction or Forrest Gump or Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, that was a those, good year. All three of those movies yeah. came out in 1994. Yeah, there was something in the water. There. <laughs> also, whenever I hear "Let's Stay Together," I always think of the. Yeah, I think of that. I always too. think yeah. of the scene with Marcellus talking to Butch at the restaurant, and that's a great just song on its own it's too. I mean, I mean, Al Green. like fucking Al Green is Al, just Al Green's great. the last record yeah. I just bought. From oh Jax. really? Yeah. It's what an, what I, record? An Al Green's greatest hits album I just got from the oh. record store. I got it for four dollars. Wow, that's yeah, awesome. Cool. I know. I love Al Green. He's great. And it was funny because I I did listen to the tracks a few times, and I just. One of the tracks that really, that I really uh, fell in love with uh, is uh, Lonesome Town by Ricky Nelson. 
Oh. That track is so beautiful. It's not a track that I listen to often, but when I started listening to the soundtrack again and that song came up, I was like, man, this is really You know, great. he gets a lot of flack for, like, saying really stupid shit, and I was just talking about this in the car. Uh, of course, our, be- our, our beloved saint, uh, Mr. Quentin Tarantino, said yeah. he had a, another faux pas where he said... I mean, do uh, we have to talk about this? Well, he said, no, but it's relevant. It's relevant. <laughs> Is he, it, though? Yes. He said Sharon Tate was no longer defined by her murder thanks to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So, oh. he, obviously, Tarantino says a lot of crazy stuff. But one thing nobody can deny is that he knows how to put together a soundtrack. He has good taste. Yeah, he, all of his soundtracks are... That's why it's relevant, because regardless of the crazy shit he might say, it just shows that he's right, you know, he's artistically inclined. Yeah. Um, yes, he does have it where, where it counts. Well, yeah, um, yeah, Pulp Fiction uh, is definitely up there on my list uh, as far as, like, you know, top movies go. And uh, the soundtrack definitely was a big part of it. Like, like you said, it's so intertwined with uh, the events of the film, and it like he puts the music in there. Like, and it's not like it doesn't have a the movie doesn't have a composer. It's all just like songs, like old old fashioned songs, like rock, pop, soul, whatever, whatever he's got in there. To he puts it, he selects it specifically for certain scenes, so that, like it elevates it or enhances the mood of the scenes whether it be like something playful something suspenseful scary funny and um he's been doing it i I would say since the beginning or since you know he broke out with um reservoir dogs uh like going to that movie uh he there's i that scene with um again i'm forgetting names uh, the one with uh michael madsen yeah. uh, where he's like about to uh, torture the cop in the warehouse or whatever like clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am. That song. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, song yeah. plays. But now I, I don't think I could see the that song the same way until like after after watching that scene. And, and like it just it just I guess fits the scene because some of the lyrics kind of like match up to certain things. Like say like you got this guy who's about this criminal who's about to torture you know the cop and in the lyrics there's like clowns, jokers, and like fools and crazy people and. It kind of like goes with the scene, even though it's kind of like a very like rock pop, like sort of like high, uh, high sort of high energy song. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but like, uh, what like what's 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 your take on the film in general, though, John? Oh, me? Yeah. Oh well, I'm I'm what I'm about to say isn't about to reinvent the wheel. I think it deserves the critical acclaim and it deserves it deserves the spot on the best of list, but mostly because I think it changed convention cuz I can't really think of many films which did what Pulp Fiction achieved by giving us the narrative out of order. Like yeah. were there a lot of films before Pulp Fiction? It's It's a movie that like works so well, even though it's like done. No, it works so well, but the part of what amazes me about the film is Tarantino bet on the audience being smart enough to place the narrative in order. Where I think, unfortunately, today I don't think the audience is smart enough to do that. Hmm. I guess not. Maybe, maybe, but like if if they actually show, I guess showed the movie a little bit more now, like with the newer generations, if they like you know. Get, get them at the right time, you know, the right age, I guess, to watch, like, Pulp Fiction. Well, I don't even know what age that is, but, you know, I would think uh, there's a certain age to watch the Pulp Fiction and get the most out of it. Oh, I I'm think not, I, I'm I, not I, I watched Pulp Fiction. I'm not showing my fucking five-year-old the movie. 
What's no, that? I said I'm not showing my fucking five year old the movie. Yeah. No, 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 no. Absolutely not. But uh, like I, I watched it when I was in in college. I think for the first time I watched it was in college, and we were actually watching it for film appreciation. And that's when I like I saw it for the first time, and I really, I really like the first time I watched it. I like I really got into it. I think that's because I had a you know my mind was maturing, and I was just like really getting into movies like that at the time. Your so. mind was maturing, and you were becoming a man. A man. No, because the Neil Diamond song is uh, "Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon." <laughs> that she sings along it's... to Uma Thurman in the apartment. Yeah, there you go. There song. you go. But it in terms of up. like critical reappraisal, there's a reason why your professor chose you to watch Pulp Fiction in your film appreciation class and not watch, say, Son of the Mask, <laughs> which I saw in the theater. Who wants to watch that? Like, I don't want to watch that. I watched no, but there's that. a reason. Like, I think I think Tarantino and Co. deserve all the praise in the world. Even John Travolta, who I've never been huge on, I'm like, yeah, he was very good in that. And of course, Samuel L. Jackson, I think, is the best actor in the entire picture. I think I he's mean, the best. he was he was like he after that he but he was a breakout uh, actor. He was iconic. He was in a few movies before that though. Before he actually became big, Pulp Fiction is what really got him big. Um, and before that, he was in like Do the Right Thing and uh, Jurassic Park and he was Goodfellas. He was in those movies. I mean, he, he had, had a small big part. He wasn't well known by the general public. Yeah, not like is like in the late eighties, early nineties. Uh, he was starting to come into the you know Hollywood, and these people started to notice him. But then Pulp Fiction comes out, and uh, you know he just is a, he plays the trail, you know, for uh, anybody who wants to say motherfucker or whatever. <laughs> that ass That's motherfucker. True. He, he did yeah. blaze that trail. Like, say what again? Say what again? I dare you! I double dare you, motherfucker! Say God, uh, what? One more goddamn time! Oh. <laughs> You know, I'm not even going to try to top that. Yeah. No, but the thing that's... Sorry, it's at the bar. <laughs> no, the thing that that I read about uh, in the trivia section of IMDb was apparent. like, apparently, like, he had, um, he gave the script, uh, Tarantino gave the script to a studio, and they turned it down because they thought it was too disturbing which to me i know i just find that really hilarious i mean there are parts of the film that are there are parts of the film that are not supposed to be funny but i find them but that's yeah no that's one of the things about this movie or just like tarantino films in general it's like it makes you like laugh at times where like you're not sure if you should be laughing like it seems like really bad or like inappropriate to laugh at like or it's certain just intense. Parts. Like you're laughing because it's like it makes you nervous because it's like so tense, you know. Like nervous laughter. Like I remember this is gonna make me sound like a horrible person, but when Marcellus Wallace gets raped the first time I watched the movie, <laughs> I remember laughing audibly at that part. And the and the part why where, were you laughing? I at don't that know because I was young and stupid. And the part where Uma Thurman overdoses, I was laughing the first time. But obviously, <laughs> but the second time I watched it, like a few days ago with Jack. I was more horrified. Well, that was your second time watching it? Second or third. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'd say. But, yeah, what were you saying? Uh, oh, I'd definitely seen it before we watched it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was my yeah. second time seeing it. But it's funny how your reaction to certain scenes changes the more you see them. That you were, yeah. you said you were horrified when... This... Oh, the second time I was, like, anxious and horrified watching her and you're watching Vincent try to race to his heroin dealer's house so he can pump the adrenaline and save her. Yeah, well, I can never, I can never watch that scene when uh, she, uh, when when Travolta has to uh, stab her, stab her with that adrenaline shot. Yeah. 
like yeah, Tarantino really felt like uh, films that uh, very well and edits it very well to make it so tense and it kind of excruciating to like to know like oh they got to stab her in the heart with this needle of whether it be like they the never cinematography them take the needle out. or the ed- height editing. Yeah, well, that's another interesting thing I I read too is apparently that was done. Uh, they did it in reverse. So what we're seeing on screen was actually it was uh, done back. Oh, they reversed the shot. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I I think I heard about that. Yeah. That's it. I think they said that at one point, if you look, because you know how like he draws that red mark yeah. on her chest. Apparently, like at some point, you see like the red mark isn't there anymore or something. Oh, oh little things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can I can we, see that. Can we talk about arguably the most iconic line of dialogue in the film? Which at the be, at the beginning, so no, much... no, but I'm not, I'm not spoiling it. No. The the royale with cheese. Yeah, I think oh, to me funny. that's like the most iconic line. That's the line I mean, everybody that just, remembers. That just makes me hungry. <laughs> the line everybody yeah. remembers. It's amazing how it's a testament to how good of a writer Tarantino is that he can make you remember something so innocuous that like like such a random tidbit. Yeah, well, small all. details, you small know. Details, but, but that's like, that's the uh, genius of the dialogue. A lot of his, um, a lot of his movies, like a lot of the, the the best scenes in his movies, tend to have no music. Sometimes they're like they're like kind of quiet. Like uh, for example, like uh, Samuel Jackson's like iconic scene with you know what does Marcellus Wallace look like? That scene, I don't think it has any music. And then and I think and then you get in the next scene, you got like you know Bruce Willis talking to Marcellus Wallace. He's like he know he he's very particular about where he wants to put his music in how he wants the music to affect the scene or affect the audience. Another another tidbit I wrote down in relation to the Royale with cheese scene is I love how Tarantino explains to the audience what a pilot is because he <laughs> thinks that the audience is so stupid that they've never heard of a television pilot before. And you, you could just, I, I just picture Tarantino at his typewriter or his like laptop or whatever he used to write. Maybe he hand wrote the script. I have no idea. But just being like, and now I'm going to explain to the audience what a television pilot is. But the way he explains like it too is really like it's fun. I don't know how to like it's like funny. like like I know what a pilot is well, obviously. obviously but when all he talks three of us know it. what a television pilot is, but like yeah. I just imagine him being like, I need to explain yeah, this we do. because yeah. But like, and that also remind that like on that note, uh, that reminds me of like the dialogue scene from uh, Kill Bill Volume Two, um, then where when uh, Bill is talking about Superman. That's a whole like scene scene where like they could have cut maybe cut that down if they if they wanted to but i mean tarantino's so so good with dialogue that you just want to just keep keep watching that him just talking about superman it's even like though when they talk about madonna in reservoir dogs yeah yeah you remember that same same similar uh thing with the the way uh, tarantino writes and how it like you know he like he, he lets the scenes play out and um whether it be dialogue or just music the guy is very particular with his, his shit, and he loves movies. I had I had never really thought in depth about what it meant to give another woman a foot massage, but Tarantino <laughs> really certainly he certainly makes the viewer focus on that. And you know, I, it's ironic because everybody knows he nowadays everybody knows that yeah. he has like a foot fetish. Yeah, but it's funny, like in retrospect, watching them talk about feet because you know Tarantino's all like do like a Tarantino marathon and see all the foot references or the shots and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Or Margot Robbie's dirty feet. Oh, yum. <laughs> or just any of their dirty feet in those movies. Or wiggle your big toe and Kill Bill. 
Yeah, but no, one of the things that we did talk about too, uh, when we watched it, uh, was how you said like he really like takes his time, like with. It's with funny. Story. The movie is a long movie to me. By the end yeah. of it, I was like, that was long, but it was almost like obviously I'm not going to compare it to Quentin Tarantino to like surrealism, but it <laughs> it almost reminded me a little bit of David Lynch or. Mm. Uh, you know, a director who really lets the scenes breathe because it never felt rushed. Where you know what it's like when you're watching a movie and you feel like the pacing just feels super rushed and they're trying to assault yeah, yeah. the viewer. I felt like the pacing was slow deliberately, but I feel like the pacing really worked for this movie because it felt like each scene, each vignette rather, had the time to kind of let the uh, breathe. Yeah, it has like um, his early movies particularly have like a more that like almost his movies are a little bit in the long. But and they they tend to be deliberately paced, but um, I think his early movies kind of had this sort of energy to them. Not to say that like say movies like uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood have like less energy. It's just that I've noticed that Tarantino has been like becoming more indulgent with his work, like to let scenes play out even longer. And um, no, you know, I noticed the same sort of uh, longness in Once Upon a Time. He really, yes, he but, really I mean, took all his, his movies time. are long. Like, no, but the scenes in terms of having quick scenes and short scenes, I noticed the scenes were much longer. Yeah, yeah they got, his scenes have gotten longer over the years. Not, and it's not like such a big deal like for me because he always has something to uh, provide for the scene that's how whether it's be entertaining or meaningful to the plot. Yeah, he's got he's got like you know figured out I guess. In, in separate opinions, does anyone else find Samuel L. Jackson truly menacing and terrifying? In the scene yeah. where him and uh, John Travolta are interrogating those guys, I yeah. just find him so scary and no, so yeah, menacing. Yeah. That's definitely one of the best, like, what, what kind where of, he recites what, the verse from yeah, the Yeah, no, Bible. but, like, what would you call that, like, that kind of scene? Menacing. Well, like, actually, confrontation? Uh, yeah, it's a confrontation. Yeah. yeah. To break, to break it down a little bit, like... What happens before that scene when when they're interrogating the guys or they're about to kill the guys in in the room or whoever the guy is that was, you know, they wanted they had to get rid of. Um, they were talking about like the Royale with cheese and they were just talking like buddies, just talking about how they want to go to the fast food place to eat some burgers and stuff. And then, you know, they're talking about like foot massages and then they they go, they go up there, they prepare themselves. They take a breath, breathe a breath and then they go in. And they they're basically putting on a sh- their their show their their this is their profession and all of a sudden it switches and um, Samuel Jackson is terrifying as all hell but before that he's like he's a very relatable guy just talking about burgers and foot massages and all that stuff but then then once he gets to the the apartment all of a sudden that switches and the scene plays out and it's amazing yeah well one of the the interesting lines that he has uh, before that scene is when he uh when he's talking tr- to travolta about foot massages and then when they're done he says come on let's get into character uh oh I didn't it's just interesting yeah just the idea of like them kind exactly. of like playing the parts of i mean they are hitmen but they're playing the parts of like hitmen but they're but really like Marcellus you know, wants regular schmoes kind of uh, on the outside schmucks you know shooting marvin in the face and all that you know making mistakes yeah um, so yeah, I mean, like a lot of Tarantino films, it's also told in the format of a novel, which in this one kind of makes the most sense because, you know, hence the title, Pulp Fiction, it's like, uh, 
it's like the, the whole movie is kind of a it's a homage uh to uh pulp fiction novels <laughs> obviously oh yeah um poster yeah um and yeah I, and i just kind of find it like interesting like the way he decided to tell the story because in a way you could look at it i mean i mean i'm, I'm assuming most it's kind of like an anthology in a way I mean, I know that to an extent, yeah. a lot of the stories are, like, interwoven somehow, but they are kind of, in a way, it is kind of, in a, in a way, an anthology. Um, but, yeah, and the thing that I kind of find interesting, too, is, like, you could even see, like, each section of the movie or chapter or whatever you want to call it, it's kind of like its own movie in a way like each of them kind of have like sort of like a beginning a middle and an end you know like short films within like one big uh, presentation yeah yeah yeah, definitely Um, yeah i can see that definitely chronologically the suitcase what is in the suitcase oh that's up for the audience to figure out of course but of course it's never intentionally revealed what's in the maybe it's the maltese falcon or tarantino said it's a MacGuffin. Yeah, well, one of the most popular theories, obviously, is um, that it's Marcellus, that it's Marcellus's soul. Oh, please. Because, well, because people have theorized that because um, in the scene where he's talking to Butch, uh, he has a Band-Aid in the back of his head. And people mm. say, theorize that, like, that's where, like, his soul was taken out or something. <laughs> but in reality, that was actually, that was real, like, uh the actor wow. Ving Rhames, that was like a real thing that he had. He had some kind of injury and he had to have a Band-Aid placed <laughs> on there. But yeah, I guess that was like one of those happy a- accidents. But yeah, but they theorized that that's like the the suitcase contains Marcellus's soul, which I don't really buy. Uh, uh, it doesn't, I don't know. It doesn't really make complete sense to me. Yeah, but people can have their theories about it, and that's what makes that I think that part fun. Like you can say whatever you want about what's in the suitcase, and yeah. you can debate about it, and that that's kind of like a little bit of fun, right? Just to like figure that out, you know? And yeah, I mean to me, you know, get something right about it. Yeah, like to me, like it doesn't like I never really, like I don't really care that much about like what's in the case like i don't think it's really that like important it's more just kind of like yeah but it's fun to theorize yeah it is fun to theorize that's the whole that's the only thing i know it's ultimately not that important to the whole plot but everyone always wants to think stuff is there for a reason of course yeah the next notes i wrote down i wrote in chronological order i wrote son of a preacher man iconic uma is so sexy two shakes Mm. of a lamb's tail lol daddy yo (laughs) <laughs> all in order but she really is like i have to say she is so sexy in that movie oh my god <laughs> no yeah like she is really good at, and she was like really young too when she did that movie like how oh, yeah. young i'm like 24 i think huh? something like like mid 20s something mm. like that okay so there, wow. there's a one year age difference then okay <laughs> <laughs> billy ray was a preacher's son and when his daddy would visit he'd come along but uh, what, something that i wanted to something that i wanted to bring up was that What's interesting, what's interesting about the first story is how Jules and Vincent are portrayed. Uh, because in most crime movies, like, the gangsters' roles are usually just, like, revolved around the overall plot. Uh, but here, like, we just, like, we just kind of see, the like, the hitmen, like, 
shooting the shit and just having regular conversations as as regular as these characters conversations can be before doing their day-to-day job i don't know i just it's i just think it's kind of interesting but that's what that's what makes it a tarantino film instead of like another film the fact that they're having like random conversations and yeah, I guess which like which makes you relate to them more, and like uh, you, they're likable before they start doing terrible ass unlikable things, you know. See, I never find them particularly likable. I never felt particularly attached to any of the characters in the movie. I mean, all the characters in this movie are terrible people. They're <laughs> like, all bad. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could make the. I felt kind of bad for Mia when she snorted all those drugs and overdosed <laughs> a little bit. I mean, she is a yeah. kind of an idiot. She's though. a cokehead. Yeah. She's a young one, a cokehead. Um, I mean, I guess you can make the argument that, uh, the character of Jules is kind of redeemable and that he wants well, he to decides change to walk his away. life. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Guys, what, what scene is this from? Wait, I, I have to try to do my own interpretation. Okay, ready? I'm Five, four, three, two, one. I said, God damn. <laughs> I said, God damn. A broken, broken arrow. No, it, it, when she's in the bathroom and she's yeah, she's the snorting coke. the cocaine. She's yeah. snorting oh. the cocaine. She's like, I said, God damn. Yeah, I remember the way she down, says that is so funny to me. Yeah, I don't know why it's so funny to me. And I love the way uh, Vincent is pissed off that the shake is five dollars because the older I've gotten, the more cheap I've gotten. And to me, five dollars mm-hmm. is a lot for a shake. But nowadays, you go to Burger King, you will find a shake for five dollars. Yeah. Like, like everything is so expensive nowadays. But a five dollar shake back then would have been at least like nine dollars now. Or ten dollars, mm. yeah, yeah, I believe it. I also wanted to bring up too that uh, a couple of years ago, some theater company, uh, they did like they put on Pulp Fiction, but they did it in the way that Shakespeare would have done it. Oh no! So they're all do- no, but it's like it's really funny. You have to look up the video. Yeah, you should watch it. I kind of want to watch this. it. Yeah, they do it like. They do it just basically like in Shakespearean talk, and they have like those old outfits on, and it's so funny. But it, I don't know for some reason. It, Let's go back, uh, like Shakespeare Shakespeare talk. Well, they, the the Bible verse they wouldn't have to change the Bible verse that much. Oh no! The no, path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish well, and the tyranny of evil men. Um, that is one tasty burger. No, the burger did look good. I mean, the food did look good at Jackrabbit Slim's, but it's such a kitschy restaurant. You know Tarantino, when he saw that restaurant, he's like, I love this. I kind of want to go there, actually. Is it, it's not a real place, is it? I have no idea. I bet you Tarantino invented it for the movie. I'd, I'd love to look that up. But I bet Tarantino got the uh, was eating the food on set when they were doing that scene, too. Now, I have a question for you, too. This is mm-hmm. a question I have. Do you guys at all believe that Mia does not know why Tony Rocky Horror was really pushed out the window? We all know that she knows. I think I think it's like a like a 50-50 thing. You I think, think she could be lying, but I think she might be telling the truth. I don't know. I could see it either way. But again, I feel like it's another kind of like MacGuffin thing where it's like used more as like a plot device and not really important to like the overall plot. I don't know. Yeah. Does anyone else feel secondhand embarrassment during the dance scene for them? Here's all these. Why? Peop- That's like one of the no. But here's all these people. Ever. Here's all these people trying to like eat their kitschy dinner, their burgers, their milkshakes, their French fries, and you have this like cocor and this hitman dancing, and their moves are not. She's a good dancer, but Travolta cannot move. 
I don't know. know. I thought his. I find his dancing kind of cringeworthy. Dancing kind of. Cool. I mean, he was You would think he was in Greece in Saturday Night Fever, so you would think he knew how to bust a move. But I just found myself look feeling embarrassed for John Travolta. Maybe Tarantino told him to restrain himself from really getting all crazy with the dancing, and so he was like, you know, like the wife of a crime lord. Why do you need a dancing trophy? Like I, I felt like so. She's like, I want that trophy. I mean, she's pretty spoiled. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah she, she has just an wants comment. to enjoy life. What'd you say, Chris? No, she just wants to enjoy life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. With white powder to spare. <laughs> Billy right was a powder, not the, the, the overload, overload powder, the one that she, she snorted or whatever. Yes, not the heroin. Yeah. I also just, like, really love the, the, no, the noir influence in this mm-hmm. film. Oh yeah. Oh, she's the total femme fatale. Yeah, she's the femme fatale. But I also like like I just love the parts where like um like I love the green screen of effects they use like in the car scenes. Like that's like that's like right out of a noir. It's very vertigo. Film. Yeah, like from yeah. the 40s he or does 50s. That in a lot of his movies yeah, like Kill Billy like, had yeah. that as well. What'd you say? No, um, no. Tarantino has that with you know the way like when the actors are in the car and they get the background like the rear projection or whatever. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has that in Kill Bill as well. At least the 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 second one at the yeah. very beginning. What are you laughing at? I'm laughing because I'm reading about uh, him casting Uma Thurman and Tarantino considered Julia Roberts for the part, <laughs> <laughs> and he also wanted um, they uh, considered Meg Ryan and Holly Hunter were also <laughs> considered. Meg Ryan. I don't think Meg Ryan would have had it in her. Too, I, I too read, many rom coms. I read that he had uh, he had convinced her over the phone to do the part. That's interesting. Yeah, that's really funny. All right. Yeah. All it takes is a phone call. Yeah, sometimes changes it. Changes everything. Yeah. Uh, what else uh, did you want to say about it, John? I said uh, just talking about the overdose is very stressful. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's like that's like a really Horrible. scary. It is scary scene. I hope I'm never like, in a no. situation. That like is actually that. kind of a very Hitchcockian kind of scene in a way. It, yeah, yeah. It's very suspenseful. And you also know, because that, you know, like she's she's going for the wrong drug. Uh, she was supposed to, you know, go for one drug, but it's actually you know the other drug that's like all ec- extra potent and whatever. Yeah, like the audience knows knows that the way he they play it out, like you know, it's that's the wrong one, and then boom, it, then we know, like, oh, she could die. It's like, wow, stakes are yeah. high, just like that. And I also find it interesting too how, like, whenever uh, Vincent goes to the bathroom, something yes. always bad, something always bad is either happening or about to or happen. Or to him, yeah, um, yeah. It's it happens the first time it happens. I think it's with uh, Mia snorting the heroin. Yeah. And then it's um the diner scene at the end he goes to the bathroom, remember? Yeah, but then uh Before but that. then it's uh, when he uh, gets Bruce shot. Willis yeah, Bruce shoots Willis him. Shoots him yeah. Yeah, and then it's the at shooter. the diner yeah. scene where uh Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer uh oh, yeah. rob try to rob oh, By the, the way, we totally we I'm sure we'll talk about them at the end when the diner scene uh comes full circle. But can we just talk about how gross they are together? Who? Tim Roth Me. and Amanda Plummer. Oh, they yeah. are so gross. She's gross. He's gross. I just find them so mangy and disgusting. They look like they haven't they, taken showers they were, they in were days. They're made for each other. No, they are made for each other, but they're so gross. I just yeah, found myself screaming at the TV, being like, you gross bastards. <laughs> Get a real yeah. job. Stop robbing people. 
And I, I've always loved the uh, the opening scene of Pulp Fiction where they're just like sitting at a diner and the, the Eric Roth is talking really fast and you hear key, key words about robbery and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden it's like they're, they're holding up the restaurant or diner. It's like, whoa. And then the music comes in. Like whenever I think of Tarantino, like when I hear when I hear that music, to me that is Tarantino. That that the, that music after the opening scene uh, is what that's like pure Tarantino to me. Like I actually used that music for a video of college where in the in the in this video we got these uh, two uh, two people in a car with this uh, relative one of their relatives and they they talk about they killed somebody and then the girl the per the relative wants to get away from that they get out of, they stop the car they get out of the car and the guy comes up with a plan he's like get back in the car and in the video i have the music that music from pulp fiction play because they're about to kill this relative on the road with the car oh, and i figured the violence and like you know the quirkiness about it the music I, I thought of that music and i was like tarantino man i'm putting it in there definitely yeah. So can we move on to the next vignette? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. So chronologically, of course, Bruce Willis, Butch, double crosses uh, Marcellus Wallace. And he runs away and uh, get, retrieves his girlfriend. And the one thing I notice is they fool around on the bed. So, you know, Tarantino wants to put a little sexy time in his yeah. movie. Which a little, is little hot. Sexy time, yeah. A little sexy time. But the, the one thing I remember from the scene, and I doubt you guys, maybe you'll remember this, is she has a huge appetite, Bruce Willis's girlfriend. She's like, I can't wait to have a stack of blueberry pancakes. She's like, bacon, sausage, two eggs, <laughs> a slice of blueberry pie. This woman wants the whole fucking menu. And yeah. I'm like, when's the last time she ate? Is what I'm thinking. Yeah. Oh, but she, did yeah, you? She was skinny, but, but like I, I guess she was like uh, kind of showing her innocence in those scenes, like just talking about all the food and stuff. Like ah, oh, yes, sounds so good, whatever. But I actually I read a theory that she might be pregnant with Butch's mm-hmm. kid. Oh, that's interesting. So, good point. And she's talking about like a like having a pot belly, and oh. people thought like, well, why would she be talking about that? And then in that same scene. She's about to tell him something, uh-huh. and then she walks over to the bed and she sees that he's asleep, and then she says, "Never mind." Oh. So some people have theorized that maybe it's because oh, he's that would tell make, him that, that she's would make pregnant. a lot more sense. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, but um, we can't like not mention the scene with Christopher Walken. His one scene, the flashback. Yeah, oh yeah, well. that I I laugh every time that the watch scene comes up his up. ass. The watch up his ass. The watch up his ass. He hit this watch up his ass for two years. Wait, no, Chris, you could say it. Uh, well, how many years was it? I think two years. Two years. Like, so he had this watch up his ass for two years. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, I love it. the shit stains <laughs> off, off the watch. Ew. No, but it, it's a great, like, and again, like, it's it's another segment of the film that's that's structured re- really well because, I mean, I don't know if you, if you noticed this, John, but it, like, the story that Christopher Walken tells young Butch at the beginning kind of, it mirrors kind of what Butch ends up experiencing later mm-hmm. on in the story because Christopher Walken talks about how he was like uh, imprisoned with his dad, but then also later on Butch becomes uh, imprisoned with uh, 
Marcellus. So he kind of goes through like a similar uh, experience. Thing, experience that his dad does, which oh, is yeah. kind of it's interesting. Um, yeah, I can see that definitely. Yeah, I saw you were looking up Christopher. No, Walken. I was looking up Christopher Walken because I I was trying to think of stuff to say about him. But, like, whoa, he's an amazing actor. No, you should, he, you he, him he, he, no, he's a good actor. He's good. I liked him in Hairspray. He was good in that. And he's only in it for, like, a few minutes, but it's such a memorable scene. Yeah. scene. Because the it's watch is up his ass. If you want to have, like, a memorable ball. scene, just write a scene for Christopher Walken about having a watch up, up his, his ass. ass. <laughs> so, we already yeah. talked about how Butch shoots Vincent in the bathroom. But um, but did you notice that he's actually he's reading the same book that he was reading in the earlier, restaurant? Yeah. Which also, by the way, how is he? How did he have a book on him? Some people keep books in their car, I guess. I, I mean, I guess he went to the car, maybe, but I don't know. Knowing knowing Vincent, he's being in the bathroom all the time. I mean, he knows he's going to be there a while, so he he brings a book along with him. Oh yeah, well, another thing that they say that the reason why. Vincent keeps going to the bathroom is because apparently, like, cocaine or heroin makes you, like, shit a oh, lot or something, so. I can see that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Deep in character. Yeah, and also, yeah, like, and it, it's funny for me watching this film now because I had actually just watched um, Grease not too long ago with Bethany. So it's really funny to see, like, both those movies back-to-back with him in it to see, like, what a contrast uh you it know is, yeah. like his role in pulp fiction is with grease and this was also like yeah like it, it's known for being like his comeback film and this was his comeback this was uh, travolta's comeback film along with um i think it's uh what's it called that's cool baby you say something it. what's that say movie anything say anything which is interesting because also bruce willis plays uh he voices the baby in that movie as that's well a, so it's talking Look who's oh talking. yeah, look, look who's, who's talking. talking. Say yeah. anything is the other one with the uh, yeah, Peter Gabriel in the boombox. Yeah, right. Yeah, whatever. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, and I actually saw a video once uh, that Travolta tell like told like the story behind how he got involved with Pulp Fiction, and it's really funny because Tarantino like invited him up to his house or whatever, and he was saying to him like, "I'm gonna like you know, I'm gonna like." fix your career and make you a big star again and he offered him well he he offered him two scripts he he originally wanted him to be in uh from dusk till dawn mm. uh which of course we know is uh directed by uh robert rodriguez which later on had tarantino himself uh alongside um uh george clooney so yeah but it's funny because like Travolta was like he was like no I don't want to do a vampire movie I I'm not into that at all but he was like but I'll he's like but I am really interested in Pulp Fiction and uh, yeah I don't know it's it's it was it was really funny before we started uh, doing this that's cool that's cool yeah so like Travolta like it was a chance we could have had a vampire Travolta yeah vampire Travolta. Sandy, baby. <laughs> <laughs> just like there should just be like a like a grease with vampires. Grease with vampires. Yeah, Denny. <laughs> I honestly think you know 
Travolta now, like to, uh, today, should consider doing a a vampire remake of Grease. I mean, at, Travolta like, will and, appear in anything nowadays. Unfortunately, his yeah, career has gone like to the that movie, the uh, the fanatic that he did a, a couple years ago. I don't know if you guys seen oh, that yeah, movie. Yeah, I remember seeing well, still the body. <laughs> the what? Travolta was in that flop movie, uh, Gotti. Yeah. What was that about again? the mobster? Gotti. He was in like a Gotti, right? Yeah, Gotti, okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. I've never seen that one, no. Yeah. I've seen bits and pieces of The Fanatic. I'm like, yeah, this is tough. Can we that talk about um, Butch ramming his car into Marcellus Wallace? Oh, right. yeah, that is such a. That's such a crazy scene. That scene is so crazy. And Kathy Griffin's in it. Yeah, yeah I always I forget like, that she's in it. I was like, oh, in that's it. Kathy Griffin. What is she doing in this universe? Yeah. <laughs> Well, what what scene was she in? She's in the scene of what? Yeah, the car scene where Bruce Willis rams his character. I know Bruce Willis rams his car. Into, so she's like on the sidewalk. She's or on something? the sidewalk. She's one of the pedestrians who's like, <laughs> "Are you okay?" or whatever. Yeah. And then wow. the pawn shop owner takes them both hostage, and that scene occurs. Yeah, it almost becomes like a horror movie at that part. A little bit. I get yeah. a lot of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre vibes. Or Deliverance, uh, if you want to go. Yeah, yeah. That gimp suit really freaks me out in that movie. (laughs) And and then Bruce Willis comes in with a samurai sword and like, huh. Which was such a, like, it was... um, Such a choice. A very Kill Bill. Yeah, well, that was such a a foreshadowing of what was to come in Tarantino's career. I love how Marcellus tells Butch that they're even and to tell no one about the rape. And to, yeah. to depart L.A. forever. Zed's dead, baby. Zed is dead. <laughs> well, I just remember this now, but Vincent... Every one of you last move, and I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you. Good, good, good voices on that, like, good imitation. Yeah, that, that really makes me laugh. Yeah, she's like... <laughs> <laughs> no, but, um... Yeah, arguably, you can say Jules learned from his mistakes, but... Uh, Vincent did not. Yeah, no. that's why he gets killed um, earlier. And, you know, like chronologically, you know, Vince goes, he's, he dies, and, and Jules, he survives or whatever. Yeah, well, the thing is that, like, Jules sees the divine intervention. He acknowledges what happens and he lives. He sees it as a sign. Yeah. But then Vince Vincent. Is like, I don't care. We're alive, man. Let's go. Vincent chooses to ignore it, and he ends up dying. So there's yeah. something to be said for that. Yeah, yeah. I guess I would think like um, Vince and Jules' story is like when you watch it uh, like like in order. Like you like I mean you can look you can pick it apart like the way it is like non non linear. But if you put it like linear, straightforward from beginning to end, their story you can you can definitely see that um, a through line where you know Jules. He believes like in the divine of the situation, and then you got Vince, who's like, "I don't care. Let me just have coke and have fun, have burgers, man." I would love to see a cut of this movie done in chronological order, with all the scenes in the proper order. I wonder if it would like make it worse or make it better. I don't know, uh, I, I don't know if it would make it more conventional or whatever. I'm not sure, but uh, I want. Do they have like a version of Memento and like chronological? Yeah, they do. Oh, I love Memento. Memento's and it's brilliant. funny because I took a film class a few years ago and my teacher said that his friends 
watched that movie in order and they said that it was really boring <laughs> in order memento was really boring. yeah well so maybe maybe the same result would occur if you watched pulp fiction in order i don't yeah. know i think pulp fiction might actually like pass that test because it's just the stuff that's in it the music and like going back to the music yeah the i think the music and um just the stuff the scenes themselves self-contained scenes or like scenes that connect together it just um this has a lot more to it entertainment wise with memento it's a very dramatic movie not not really um humorous i would say i mean there's bits and pieces but it's pretty much a very serious film about a guy looking for this other guy and doing it chronologically just uh, wouldn't have done it justice like this that made that what made that movie so compelling is the way it was edited together to put you in that headspace of that of the main character yeah also i wanted to bring up and i feel like we should talk about harvey keitel oh yeah harvey keitel is really i thought he was really good, good in this in this the as fixer. the fixer yeah. yeah i just my favorite line of his is when he's like so pretty please with sugar on top clean the fucking car <laughs> i love that part. Well, what was travolta thinking by shooting that guy right in the head in the car of course his brains were gonna explode everywhere. i think it was like a misfire like he just like he had a gun in the hand and he just like he accidentally pulled the trigger i mean i don't know how the like trigger like how sensitive or tough that trigger is on that gun but you know, I, I guess he, you know, he was just getting carried away and he just pulled the trigger by mistake, like a reflex or something. I don't know. Well, that's one of, like, one of the interesting things about, like, as the movie goes on, you really start to see, like, what a fucking idiot Vincent yeah. is. Yeah, he really is. You know? Yeah. Like, he's just, he's so incompetent, like, as a hitman. It's... Like, you see that meme of him, all, like, they, you see him in, all, like, these videos where he's looking for something, right? He's like... Yeah, it's the scene where... Yeah. Um, where Mia's talking to him on the intercom and he's looking around and he does that. Uh, yeah, John's looking yeah, at it I right found now. Out. Yeah, I just found that. He he's, uh, he's everywhere now looking for the inter- looking around. Also, one thing we do need to talk about, which I think we need to talk about. Jack Jack doesn't like controversy on his podcast, but I think we need mm. to talk about it. I think Tarantino saying the N-word has aged really, really badly. And I just want to mm. put that out there. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I always get really uncomfortable whenever that scene comes up. Like, in, in Pulp Fiction, like, or just, like, Tarantino's movies in general, though? No, I just mean that scene. No, in that, that specific scene. No, I don't um, mind if he wants to write it as dialogue in Django, be my guess, but the fact that he's the one actually saying that word in that scene. Oh, made, yeah, yeah. No, but it made yeah. me, like, visibly uncomfortable watching that scene. I was like, oh, yeah, my Yeah, I know, you God. just, like, turned to me and you were like... You did that classic jaw and like reaction. Well, you you don't have a reaction. You think that's okay? No, I'm just saying. Like I don't know, just the way you react to things. Well, just because I think, well, you know, like the yeah. discourse has changed. That would, if if he did that today, that would not be allowed. Yeah, it's just I guess it was put in there to really make the scene, uh, him on the screen, like that scene more tense, more confrontational, and all that. Because he's like talking about like you know, like you're in my house, you fu- you fucks, you messed up, like. What are we going to do about this? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, 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 you know, it's an interesting conundrum, I guess, especially nowadays. But then again, we, we still love this movie for what it is. And, um, you know, I can't change it. Yeah, you can't change it. Yep. Nope. How do you, 
awkwardly <laughs> go on to the next no thing. no awkwardly no well the diner is what chronologically the, the diner scene the final diner scene which brings everything full circle is what kind of closes out the entire movie and I, I love how Amanda Plummer the honey bunny Yolanda she like um, Tim Roth his character he's more down to earth but she's just crazy she starts pointing her gun everywhere she's like get the fuck on the floor <laughs> <laughs> and that always makes me laugh how like crazy yeah. uh, reservoir dogs are brothers oh and there was actually oh, talks yeah, i heard about that theory yeah and there was talks for a while of tarantino doing uh a standalone movie of the vega brothers uh <laughs> but that never happened uh for some reason but that would have been interesting What's to see his 10th film his 10th film his final film before retirement. He mentioned oh, he yeah. wanted to do Kill Bill 3 with Uma Thurman's daughter. And, and again, yeah. uh, the, the daughter, the, the bride's daughter. And I, I can see that. I can see... Um, I can see him actually doing that. Yeah, they, they, they're they people like, they're dreamcasting Zendaya as, the I think, the little girl from the first movie where, the, like, the assassin, the black, the black woman, I forget the actress, but black woman that she kills at the beginning of uh, the first movie and her daughter was there and she sees that her mother's dead and in the sequel this i this supposed like this idea of a sequel she will come back for revenge and send yeah. i will play that role yeah i don't know if i want to see a kill bill three i mean I it was, it was so. kind of made as like part one and two like part three is just like adding more like filler like you know just adding on just adding on maybe if you keep it at two it can like keeps it yeah i think you know it works as two part i one, like that part it's two. kind of it ends kind of open-ended yeah you know uh, i guess so i mean in that way maybe you can make a third one but really um if they do a third one that might actually like the i think the thing they have the challenge is to make it make a story that's that i guess works with the other two movies without being too indulgent if you know what I mean, you know what I mean? Like not to go off the beaten path or to, um, you know, overstay their welcome. Yeah. Well, what's funny about when he comes out with movies from 2009, he came out with movies 2009, 2012 was Django. Hateful Eight was 2015. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was 2019. So it seems like every three to four years he comes out with a new project. So yeah, I yeah. guess we can expect his final film in like 2022 or 23 Maybe twenty four. Maybe twenty three or twenty four. We'll expect something new. Yeah, from him. See, he mentioned he is. wanted to do a Star Trek movie a while ago. Yeah, I did. That, 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 yeah, was that, like that a would while be ago. interesting. Yeah, yeah, but Especially they're, they're moving Chris forward Pine. with that movie with someone else. Oh, they're going forward with someone else. Oh, boo. Yeah, okay, not so Tarantino. Yeah. No, it's not it's, uh, spicy. So much for that. Yeah, that would have been interesting though. Da, 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 but uh, da, da, fun da, fact: da, um, da, da, they they brought on this director. Um, Matt something, Sack, Sackman. Uh, this guy made a name for himself. He directed an episode of Game of Thrones, and he directed all the episodes of WandaVision. Oh, oh really? Cool. Yep. So they they because because of that like notoriety he got or like you know the experience he got from doing the TV shows, they got him to do the start next Star Trek movie. Hmm. Yep. Fun fact. Well, Tarantino also recently came out with a novelization of. Um... Once upon a time, time yeah. in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I heard Ooh, about. I heard about that. I kind of want to read that. A novelization. 
Yeah, yeah. It doesn't answer a lot of questions, but I don't, I don't know like too much about it. Well, Tarantino's developing bounty law into a TV show. Oh yeah, I I heard about that too. That might be good. That might be good. Yeah, I hope he doesn't retire. I kind of don't want him to. I mean, he's gonna retire. So don't say that. He he'll retire (laughs) until he doesn't retire. Oh, I don't know. I just I just have a hard time believing that he's just gonna not do anything anymore well he says he, he's gonna like write books and book <sighs> plays and stuff well he's a writer see, so i could see him do like a broadway play that would be really interesting. yeah oh, I, could, I mean i could see him even doing like tv i think tv would be really good for tarantino because he loves doing like really long stories anyway so for him yeah, to like go and do like long form storytelling i think for yeah. him this would be like up his alley i think hbo or fx or netflix or showtime yeah just throw him a shitload of money yeah, I'm sure he's thinking about that stuff right now. Yeah, yeah, that would be really when cool he's to not see. changing diapers. Didn't he just have a baby? Yeah, uh, just oh, he did. Yeah, oh, he, did. he had a baby. Yeah. Oh, congratulations! Finally, something he'll have to think of other than himself. Yeah. Oh, what about, yeah. Oh no, I was just thinking about the foot thing. Oh, you're thinking about the foot thing. Why are you thinking yeah. about the foot thing? Why are you thing? thinking about the foot thing? I don't know. Like. um... Do you like no, the feet thing? Silly. Do you admire feet like he does? I don't admire feet like he does. I don't think anyone no. can admire feet like I he never does. did. I don't think anybody I loves why, why feet thing, more but yeah. than Tarantino. Yeah, he loves his feet. <laughs> apparently, uh, Vic from... No, but it's really interesting, too, because apparently, I think Inglorious Bastards was originally conceived as a TV show, like a TV series. Yeah, and I didn't decided... hear about that one, but yeah, you know, that's like I think in like it's both for me it's Pulp Fiction and then Inglorious Bastards. Those are the, my top two of Tarantino. See, I like all his movies for different reasons. I don't know. Yeah. Like... Well, you get something different uh, out of each of them. Wait, did it? Wait, he John's looking up articles about Tarantino right he now. Called Tenet confused. He was confused by Tenet. I haven't seen yeah. Tenet yet. Christopher Nolan strikes me as someone who just wants to watch himself jerk off in the mirror a little bit. Like, don't get me wrong, The Dark Knight was fantastic, Memento was fantastic, he's definitely made some great movies, so I'm not trying to poo-poo on him, but Tenet, I heard Tenet was just like, ugh, you know? Well, I've seen seen Tenet a few times, and um, I think it's very good, in particular, it's very very ambitious for what it's going for as a spectacle, like a very in-camera spectacle. But the sound mix was bad, I heard. No, it's well, it's, it's interesting because, and then the music, coming back to music, though, the music in that movie is both amazing and frustrating at the same time because they mix the music so, it's, the music is so loud that it kind of like, it's like, it, it's like pressurizing your head and like it becomes like a little annoying after a while if, if you have the, the volume all the way up maxed, you know? And um, I remember like watching that movie and part of the reason that I was a little thrown off by it was because the sound mix, the music was so loud and sometimes the dialogue was a little hard to hear. And it was well, like, it's, again, it's weird. And then I saw it again one or two more times and it was better the second, third time around, but the dialogue is tends to get mixed a little lower than everything else, which shouldn't be the really, that has to like, yeah, you got to find a balance. You know? It's like you're, you're think about the budgets for these big budget Hollywood 
movies. It's like, there should not be sound mixing issues. You should be able to hear the dialogue. And that's what the problem is when a director directs work for himself, but doesn't take into anticipation. He doesn't take, but yeah, that doesn't you know, even, he doesn't take into account the fact that the general public is also going to be watching said movie a little bit. Yeah. But I like in general, people have been sort of complaining about Nolan's movies, the sound mix of Nolan's movies since the dark Knight rises, but I've never had a personally, I've never had a problem with it until Tenet. Tenet was like very no, very noticeable. The other ones not so much. Who did Dunkirk again? Uh, yeah, Dunkirk was oh, another one, but Dunkirk. Uh, again, yeah. Dunkirk, not I like the sound in Dunkirk. I actually like the sound mixing in Dunkirk. No, the the the, the, sound, the sound in Dunkirk is amazing, and um, Tarantino himself said it's bored by it. I think. No, I thought it was. I thought it was. You just thought right. it was okay. You didn't love it. Yeah. See, I love. I mean, Dunkirk. the only thing the only thing about that movie is that that I think negative for a lot of people is that the, you don't really get to know the characters that well, yeah. but it was more about the experience of what these guys went through during the, the invasion of Dunkirk and trying to escape. And that was the whole point of it. And I, so I got that. So as taking it for like that, it's brilliant. But like, as far as character work goes, I mean, it's kind of minimal. Yes. I'll agree with you there, but all of those are intentional choices. Of course. If Chris, yeah, it was if, a choice. If really wanted and I think it pays off really. for the most part. But for some people, I, I can understand why they didn't like it or they didn't really connect with it because they didn't really get to know the characters that well, you know. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's usually a case where, like, if it's like that, then it's, good, it's a big, it's a big no-no for me. But if, for me, it worked because I, I did care for these people, even though I didn't know much about them. Um, what 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 do we think that this movie is about, Chris? What? Uh, well, I mean, the thing, I'm thinking about the movie. I think uh, there's there's some themes about like, fa- you know, like where Bruce Willis does like father and son like parallels, like his father or his grandfather. They did like they lived their lives a certain way, and it wasn't necessarily the best, you know, the best way. Or they made mistakes, and Bruce Willis like, is making his own mistakes, and he's sort of like trying to figure out how to get get ahead in life or to you know, be better than his, uh, his father or his grandfather, I guess in some way, not, maybe not direct, but like not, he doesn't have the same experiences that they do, but he has similar outcomes where like things happen and so on and so forth. And I think that, that his story is like about him, about like, like him trying to get ahead in life and, being better than his father and his grandfather, I, at least from what I remember watching the movie here. And then you got the whole thing with Jules and Vincent, how, you know, you got these, these guys that are pretty like regular schmucks who happen to be hitmen. And, you know, something happens to them where they, uh, during the job where, you know, like they get, sh- you know, in the scene they get shot at, but nothing happens to them. And then Jules takes it as a sign. And then you got Vince, Who's like kind of just like, hey man, I just want to live, man. Let's just go. And then and by the end, he 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 like he gets his comeuppance, and Jules does not. And then you got, um, I guess yeah, I Maya. She's like kind of like this spoiled, happy, kind of happy-go-lucky, kind of wild girl who like who's into things. And and by by the end of her, I guess the end of her story, like you know, her experience of almost dying from an overdose, kind of um, you know. Makes her, I guess, realize the error of some of her ways, and I mean, I, I'm, I can't really think of anything else that really stood out theme wise, or like the message, or say like the character arcs um, that they have in the movie. But yeah, those are the ones that stand out for me, at least. Yeah, well, I think one of the biggest, 
themes of the movie really is uh, morality. Yeah, morality. Yeah. And all the things that the characters experience in the film, it's like their their more their morality is like put to the test. Uh, I think yeah, morality is the through line. That is the theme, morality. And like with Jules and Vince, with them, and then you got you know Bruce Willis. How you know he could have ran away, but he didn't. He decided to go back and save Marcellus Wallace. And Marcellus Wallace, you know, being a hard ass that he is, is willing to look past you know Bruce Willis's like you know mistakes and let him go especially since he saved him from a you know a rapist a guy you know with torture instruments and all that stuff juicy stuff yeah uh did you have anything to say john no, oh i think he summed it up i do like going on the morality thing it's when butch decides decides to save marcellus wallace so it's him mm, not being selfish, that's a strong one going out of his way to save him it's when jules decides to leave the life of crime and the life of killing people. So it shows that even though these characters on paper are like criminals, that at the core of it, they still have moments of like moral clarity. Mm, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think also like the movie just kind of shows like the effect and influence of cinema itself. Because, I mean, the thing that's interesting about it is that like while it, the, the movie is being kind of like its own thing, there are many references to other films within the film. Uh, and, uh, like, uh, Marcellus's line about uh, calling a couple of friends over to, quote, go to work on the homes here with a pair of pliers and a blowtorch is paraphrased from a line from a movie called Charlie Varick, which was Arr. a neo-noir crime film. Like Scar. Yeah. Uh, the Jack Rabbit Slims dance scene is a reference to the cafe dance scene from Bande Par, which was also, by the way, um, the inspiration for Time Warp in Rocky Horror. Really? Yeah. And Bande Par is also his production company, isn't it? Bande Par. Tarantino's? Yeah, doesn't he... Isn't that his, like, one of his companies? Yeah, I think so, now that you mention it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, wow, yeah, that's really interesting. Bande Par. I have the Criterion Blu-ray of Bande Par. The original over there, Band of Outsiders. In English. Nice. We should watch that someday. Yeah. It's it's in French. It's black and white. Oh, yeah. really? Uh the glow of the briefcase is a reference to Kiss Me Deadly. Oh, I haven't mm. seen that one. Um The Weapons Butch picks up in the pawn shop are references to weapons used in other films. Um So the baseball bat uh references uh Walking Tall. The Chainsaw is a reference to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, obviously. The Samurai Sword is a reference to the Ezekiel uh, 2517 speech is a reference to uh, Karate Kiba, the Yakuza. And uh, Butch seeing Marcellus in his car is a reference to Psycho when Marion Crane sees her boss. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. I didn't think of that now Now that I'm putting it together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even I didn't really make that connection at first when i saw it but then uh when i read that i was like oh yeah duh (laughs) yeah yeah pulp fiction was a trailblazer Um, i know reservoir dogs came out that blew people's minds and then this came out it was like a one-two punch what age would you let your child watch this movie i I, I was thinking about that while i was watching yeah we still haven't figured out i feel like you know like maybe 
high school or like yeah, like, like I would not let my like ten year old watch this movie. Well, yeah, yeah. Although Definitely Tarantino, like, uh, to like rated R. I mean, unless you're Tarantino. Because <laughs> remember when Tarantino got into that whole? Because he said the, the the reporter quoted him saying that he would that kids should go see kill bill <laughs> and he was like yeah if kids went to go see us they'd have a blast oh god kids sing kill bill oh geez oh boy i mean his Especially... movies are magical i mean there's something about his movies where you want to like live in that world for a few hours i wouldn't want to live in those worlds oh i would i would they seem so fun i mean i don't know yeah it's fun to us dangerous but fun uh this has I'm been sure <laughs> why did you imitate sean no, no, connery no, no, no. That's a reference to Walter Cronkite. Oh, it's Walter Oh, it's not like you were doing Sean Connery. Oh, no, Sean Connery is more like, uh, like, for Red October. It's lagging. The Zoom is lagging. (laughs) Cool. So, uh, this has been Cinemaniac Jack. I'm your host, Jack. Today's guest co-hosts were John and Chris. And Sean Connery. (laughs) Bye-bye. See you next time.